Today we are starting a new series in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And uh, we are this section uh, of Romans and maybe the most difficult section of the New Testament. And today's chapter that we're covering is maybe the most difficult chapter of the most difficult section of the most difficult section of the New Testament. And so, um, so that's why I'm, I'm sitting down today because we, we're just going to sit down and talk about it a little bit, right? So we're, de- we're dealing with uh, this chapter today, Romans chapter 9, deals with things like election, uh, not voting elections. Um, election, God's election uh, in salvation, predestination, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, things the church uh, has been debating uh, for like 2,000 years, and, and I'm sure we'll resolve it all today. Um, we'll get all of that tidally tucked away. No, of course not. But uh, Romans 9 through 11 is a very important section. We're calling this series um, Unfailing. In this section of Scripture, Romans 9 through 11, Paul addresses the problem of Israel's unbelief. And you might be thinking, well, I didn't know Israel's unbelief was a problem. Uh, when you look at the first eight chapters of Romans that we've been through this year, if you've been, been around here, um, Paul unpacks a lot of incredible stuff. And you might remember at the beginning of the book, um, he, talks, uh, he, he talks about, hey, um, uh, Jewish people, Israelites, um, you're in trouble, you're sinners. And, uh, and hey, you know, Gentile people, you're in trouble, you're sinners. And then he gets to chapter 3 and he says, hey, everybody, we're all in trouble. We said we're all in the same boat and it's a sinking boat, right? And so he's kind of been dealing with this tension of both Jews and Gentiles because there's both Jews and Gentiles in this Roman church, even though it was probably predominantly Gentile. But there was Jewish folks there too. And there was, as this was springing up in the New Testament and you had Jews and Gentiles both in the church, it was causing all kinds of issues, dietary issues, fighting about what to eat and what they couldn't eat. I mean, it just created all kinds of complexities that were um, um, uh, just from the two cultures, in a sense, kind of coming together. And, And so when you get to Romans 9 through 11... It's building off of Romans chapter 8, which unpacks the, we, we, we called it the series we just went through for four weeks. We called it best chapter ever. I mean, it just unpacks the incredible promises that, are every, that belong to every believer in Jesus Christ. The, it's the celebration of our assurance and the security that we have through the gospel, through faith in Christ. The question becomes that Paul anticipates in Romans 9 is this. Well, wait a second. God's chosen people of the Old Testament, the Israelites, We're looking around and most of them are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So what happened to the promise of God there? God fell? Did God's promises fail? And if so, what does that mean for me as a Christian? Is is the gospel ultimately going to fail? Is there a chance that this doesn't work out so well? What what does all this mean? And so that's the tension Paul is wrestling here with with Jewish Christians and uh, with Gentile Christians that that he's digging into. What is happening here? What we're going to see in these chapters is that God is unfailing and that God's promises are unfailing. Now we fail, but God doesn't fail and his promises do not fail. And that's the ultimate thrust we'll see of these three chapters over the day. As we dig into Romans 9, I want to ask you this question. I want to speak to you on this theme. How big is your God? How big is your God? Sometimes I hear people say things like, you know, God, and then you fill in the blank. And sometimes what they fill in the blank with, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I wouldn't believe in that God either because that God doesn't exist, right? <laughs> but other times it's just kind of like, a way to kind of package God in a way that is more palatable for them. Well, I can't believe in a God that does this. I can't believe in a God that would allow people to go to hell. 
I can't believe in a God that would, that would judge people and all, all these sort of things. And, it's, and, and what, what's happening there is we're saying, well, what kind of God would I like instead of what kind of God does the Bible reveal God to be? And so that's what we kind of have to wrestle with here in Romans chapter 9 is, is God big enough? And our, do we understand that God is big enough, that the true God, the God of the Bible is big enough that he is bigger than I can under, fully understand? That, he, that, he, that, 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 there, that, that there may be things that are going to press up against me and that I'm going to struggle with and not completely understand? And that doesn't mean that, that, that that's not really God or that that's not true about God or anything like that. It just means that he's infinite and I'm finite. Right? He's perfect and I'm imperfect. He is holy and I am sinful. So while people like to define God according to themselves, instead of letting God be the God that is revealed in Scripture, they try to place parameters around God and say, God, you live over We have to understand that if we, if we do that, in that scenario, we become God. Right? So if we're the one that places limitations on God, if we tell God what he can be and what he can't be and all those sort of things, we have created this small God and what we have ultimately done is we've become God in our minds. And so the God of the Bible is a big God. He's a sovereign God, a word you're going to hear today. He's free. He will not be restricted by you or me. So how big is our God? We need to let, the, we need to let God be divine, de, de, defined as he reveals himself in the scriptures, not as we conjure up in our minds. So, and let me just say this, we need the big sovereign God of the Bible. We need a God bigger than our sin. <laughs> We need a God bigger than our mistakes and our failures. We need a God bigger than our stubborn will. We need the big God of the Bible. And it's my hope today that as, as we walk through this chapter, that it's actually, if you're a believer today, that it's going to increase your confidence, increase your confidence in God. And if you're an unbeliever today, I, I'm hoping that it shows you the responsibility that you carry before this sovereign God. So here in Romans 9 that we're going to walk through, Apostle Paul is going to anticipate some questions, okay, uh, and that, that deal with kind of assurance from Romans 8, like how can I know for sure these, that, 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 like as I mentioned, that how can I know for sure that this is true, look at what happened to the Israelites, what does this mean, and what Paul is going to do, how he's going to answer this, is he's going to hold God up as sovereign, supreme in authority, supreme in power, uh, does what he pleases, that's what we mean by sovereign, right, absolute authority, and there's nothing that God can't do or allow, there's, you can't hold God in contempt I mean he, he's sovereign he is God okay and he is the supreme authority and he does and allows and all that sort of stuff whatever he wants to but at the same time he's going to hold us me and you and all of humanity up as responsible and he's going to deal with this fact that if you're a believer today it's because God chose you and at the very same time you chose God. You make real decisions. If you're saved today at some point, you made a decision to choose to follow Jesus Christ. He's going to hold both those things up today before us in Romans chapter 9. Both are true. And there's details and all that that we'd have to get. But both of those things are true. And we need to understand God is bigger than us. And while that may be hard for us to understand everything about God, um, it's, not, it's not hard for God. And we need to be okay with that. So look with me at Romans chapter 9. What we're going to do is we're just going to, most of our time today is going to be spent just walking through paragraph by paragraph through this. And then I'm just going to kind of sum up some thoughts at the end to give us some handles to help us kind of process this very complex chapter. So look with me at Romans chapter 9. Let's start with the first um, five verses. The Apostle Paul says, 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So this is Paul's transition from what he's about to deal with in chapter 9 and what he's revealed to us in chapter 8 where we had that great chapter on God works all things together for good. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And what we see here is Paul is deeply troubled by the lostness of his Israelite kinsmen who have not trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And his point in this section is that these are the people that God gave the law, the promises, uh, all this, the the patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, all these great people of the faith rose up through the Old Testament. They were Israelites. And you read the Old Testament, if you've ever read it, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that God blessed Israel incredibly with, with a lot. And it is these people that is through their race, through their lineage, came the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It's an incredible thing. And Paul says, now, I know what you're thinking. You're looking around and you're seeing a lot of them reject Jesus. And Paul says, you know, if I could, I'd go to hell if they'd believe. Wow. Now, it's not possible. Only Jesus can take hell so other people don't have to. But what Paul is expressing here is a deep desire he wants so bad for the people he loved that make up his family, the people that invested in him, the people that are, man, his nation, his people. He looks at him and he goes, man, I want so bad for him to believe that I'd be cut off, that I'd be anathema is the word, that I would be, I would be damned if they didn't have to be damned. I would, whatever it takes, I just want, what we're seeing here is Paul's expressing this right here, burden for lost people that he knows and loves. And so Paul is blowing something up out of the water right before he gets into this controversial chapter. And it's the idea that you can somehow use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to be careless or lazy in personal evangelism. That is absurd. Because before Paul even gets into the sovereignty of God, he's he's expressing his burden for the lost and saying, man, we would be willing to do, I'm willing to do anything it takes to reach people for the lost. And we can learn something from Paul here, by the way. What are we willing to do and what are we not willing to do to reach lost people for Jesus individually and as a church? Think about that. What are we willing to do and what are we, where do we draw the line? Because some of us, if we got real honest, we're in church, got to be honest, we would draw the line some places. Paul says, man, if I could be cut off so they could all experience salvation... So be it. Now he's expressing, not that something that's a reality. He's, he, he's trying to make a point. He's, just try, he's trying to make the point of, man, I'd do anything it takes to see these people come to know the Lord. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, he quotes from the Old Testament a lot here in this chapter, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So let's stop here because he's getting into some Old Testament stuff that we need to review. So verse 6 right there. one commentator and several commentators have pointed this out. One I was reading this week, Douglas Moo, I agree with him. He points out this is the thesis statement of the, all three chapters. Uh, the, 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 the big thrust, the big theme here of chapters 9 through 11 is it is not as though God has failed. That's why we call the series Unfailing. It, that's the theme. It's why, it's why we crafted it that way. Paul is saying just because most of the Israelites have rejected God, the Messiah, does not mean that God's promise has failed or his plans have failed for Israel, by the way. And then he's going to begin to explain that in these three chapters. And he starts by saying here, not all Israel is Israel. And here's his point. Just because you are Jewish by race and lineage does not mean that you are part of God's people. Salvation is not, nor has it ever been about genetics. If, if that's what you think, and many of them were beginning to think that in Jesus' day, right? They were like, we're Abraham's children. He's like, you've kind of missed the point. So he uses Abraham here to illustrate, because he was the first guy. What, first guy what? He was, the, he was the first guy in this Israelite family. He was the one God chose to make a nation. In Genesis chapter 12, God pursues and calls Abraham, who at that time was a pagan. At that time, he was just a lost dude, right? And God pursues him and says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham's okay. Going to move your family. A lot of things are going to happen here. And from you, and Abraham's like 75 at the time. From you, a great nation's going to be born. Created all kinds of problems with about a 75-year-old man at this point. He says, through your lineage, the nations, worldwide, the nations will be blessed. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see that that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the ultimate offspring of Abraham through which the blessing comes. But Abraham and Sarah, when they they got this promise, years go by, years and years go by, and they're getting older and older and older, and they're not having any children. And so they grow impatient, and Sarah comes up with an idea. She says, hey, Abraham, why don't you take our our maidservant, uh, this this lady over here that that serves me, that works for us, and why, you know, she's younger, and she's still, maybe she can have children and things like that, and why don't you conceive a child with her? Okay? Abraham says, Sure. And then the problems compounded, right? That, that's not going to ever really work out well. And so Hagar goes, and she has a child. She has a child named Ishmael, okay? And Abraham gets to thinking, hey, maybe the promise of God and what God's making me a great nation, maybe this can advance, and this offspring that will come that will bless the nations can advance through Ishmael. And so God says, nope, not going to happen. It's going to happen with Sarah, that's going to be how it's going to happen. And you're going to have a son. His name's going to be Isaac. And so that's what happens. God, at around nearly 100 years of age, they conceive. And you have this child. And you have Isaac and you have Ishmael. Both, both are related physically, genetically to Abraham. But the promise of God and the mission of God is advancing through one. And that is Isaac because it was always going to be according to promise, not according to human effort. And when you look at the story, that's what Ishmael ultimately represents. It's us striving in our own power to help God out. God says, that's not the way it's going to happen. 
It's going to happen according to grace and calling. It's not about physical descent and physical power and those sort of things about you taking it into your own hands. It's about God's promise. And so Paul is reminding them, this is the way it's always worked. Let's go back to Genesis. Verse 10. And not only so, Paul says, but also, uh uh-oh, another illustration coming. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated so let's pause there it's getting interesting right Paul now illustrates here with Isaac and Rebekah, right? So Isaac is the son of Abraham. So he, he's going to have children now. And he marries a girl named Rebekah. He's the son of Abraham. And he's the son that the promise had passed to instead of Ishmael. And now here we don't have children born to two different women. We have twins. She conceives twins. And you have Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out first. He's born first. So according to their tradition, the birthright comes through him. And so the blessing should pass through him. But God says, nope, I've chosen Jacob for that. The blessing's going to pass through Jacob, not through Esau. I've chosen him. And from Esau, we get the Edomites. From Jacob, his name is ultimately changed to Israel, and we get the Israelites. And in the midst of all this, he is continuing to point out here. He's using these illustrations to point out a truth. And the point here is that God chose Jacob to be the heir of the promise before either had been born. It wasn't because one was a bad guy and one was a good guy. No, no, before either had been born, God, just in his sovereignty, said, it's going to happen with Jacob. And the point Paul is making here, well, one, is that God can do whatever he wants to. He's God. He don't have to work according to our traditions and stuff. He, he can do what he desires. But the, the big other point here is that this is before birth. Neither had done good or bad. And, and that word election that you see in the, the text, God's purpose of election, it literally in the Greek means choice. It's a purposeful choice. And he says it's not about works, but about God who calls. It's not about God looking into the future and seeing that you would be a really great person to have on the team. It's not about you earning favor. No, it's about God's grace in spite of our sin. Both of these guys would grow up to be big old sinners. Not just Esau, Jacob too. His name literally means deceiver. (laughs) Which is an interesting name to name your child, right? Happy birthday, deceiver. You know, um... That's his little name, right? And he grows up to be true. He deceives Esau to get the birthright. God in his sovereignty, he knew all that was going to happen. But here's the point. When, when you get down here to the last little phrase, people get all worked up. Jacob, I loved Esau, I've hated. Now, you see it's in quotation marks. It's from the Old Testament. There's a few different ways to look at that. For one, they do both represent people groups, the Israelites and the Edomites. But this, that word there, he's not talking about emotional hatred. It's, a, it's more than likely, actually, a Hebrew idiom. It's, it's a way of compare and contrast. He's basically saying, I chose Jacob, I did not choose Esau. I chose one, I rejected the other. It's not, it's not an emotional hatred like we think of hatred. That's not the point there. So what Paul's saying to this point is he's saying this, God's promise to Israel, it has not failed. Salvation has never been about DNA. God never promised that all of Israel would be, would be saved because they had the right DNA. He's saying not all those who are of Israel genetically, the nation, um, are, uh, or, or of the nation, are of Israel the saved. And this, his point is that this is how always been the case. 
As you trace the lineage from Abraham all the way through, there's always been a remnant. It's always been not everybody. And the family of God has never been about being physically being born into it. You have to be spiritually born into it. It's never been about good works. It's always been about grace. God's free grace. And so for us today, this truth still stands, right? This what happened, the way God worked in the Old Testament, he's still working that way in the New Testament. Salvation is not about where you are from. It's not about how you were raised. It's not about whether or not your parents were or are Christians. You need the grace of God. And if you're a Christian today, it's by God's doing, not your doing, not your earning, not your status. It's by the grace of God. If you're a believer today, God's keeping his promises to us do not depend on on our will, but his. We can be sure that Romans 8 is true. We can be sure that our hope in the gospel will not put us to shame because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on a sovereign God, and that is good news, okay? I'm glad it doesn't depend on me. I'm glad I ain't got to keep myself saved, I'm glad it's not dependent on the scorecard at the end of the week and how many times I read my Bible and how much I spent in prayer and how much I sinned or didn't sin. I'm glad it depends on God's free grace. Amen? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, Paul's going to ask about five questions. This is the second one. He's sort of defending God here of showing God God needs no defense. (laughs) He says, God is not showing injustice by choosing some to be saved and allowing others to remain lost. Let me explain. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul here is quoting from Exodus 33. Moses encounters God on, a, on the mountain. God tells him that he's going to uh, uh, basically choose, he's going to choose to have compassion on whom he will and choose to have, have mercy on, on whom he wills. He's just saying, I'm a big God and I can do what I want to and I'm going to have compassion and mercy on whom I choose to have compassion and mercy. And Paul is showing that from the Old Testament, this is how God has always worked. And he says, it's, it's not about human will and about our willpower and our exertion and us getting it right. It's not about that. It's about God and his mercy. Now, What's all this about? What's the point Paul's making? Remember, he's defending the justice of God. So God cannot be unjust in not saving everyone. He can't be unjust in saying, I'm going to save you and allowing other people to remain lost. And here's why. Because it's according to mercy. You say, what do you mean? What's mercy? Undeserved. By definition, mercy means you don't get what you deserve. So in other words, God can't be unjust because nobody deserves to be saved. Nobody deserves to be saved. There's not a person on the planet that deserves salvation. And he's saying, listen, it's all about mercy. If it's according to mercy, God's not unjust in doing this. It's about God's, in fact, God's merciful that he saves anyone. He's gracious that he saves saves anyone. That's his point. Verse 17. Got another illustration. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
This was back when uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had, had, had Israel in slavery for 400 years. Here's what God says to Pharaoh, what Scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So he illustrates here with Pharaoh. Let's pause there. Israel, slaves in Egypt. God raises up Moses. Let my people go. Do you know the story? Let my people go. They need, you need to let them go. Let them free. Let them go worship. Let, let them go from slavery. And the Bible says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. and says no. And he hardens his heart over and over again. About four or five times. Finally, if you read the Exodus, God hardens his heart. But not until after in the text, Pharaoh hardens his heart. John Stott points out, this is the context. God hardening here is in the context of someone who's already hardening themselves. He's giving himself over. That's what you want? Fine. You don't want me? That's the picture here. And in the end, God shows mercy, he says, on whom he wills, and no one in heaven deserves to be there, and everyone in hell deserves to be there. And that's his point. (laughs) The idea of the innocent person suffering unjustly, the wrath of God, does not exist. That is a farce. What about there is not a single person who will ever end up in hell who does not deserve to be there? And there is no one who will end up in heaven who deserves to be there. Other than Jesus, it's his place, right? We don't deserve to go. That's the the tension here that Paul is creating. Now look at verse 19. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For whom can resist his will? So Paul assumes here, you may ask, well, if God chooses, then how can he find fault with sinners who don't choose him? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Let's pause there. Paul's point here, scholars point this out, is that he's not trying to shut down genuine dialogue and questions about these things. It's okay to wrestle with these things. He's rebuking the smug, unbelieving heart that would try to justify itself before God and sort of kind of pull a gotcha on God, usurping God's authority here. He's making the point, God's God, you're not God, so there should be some humility in how you approach God. We don't get to point fingers at God. He goes on to say, verse 20, well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I'll call beloved. And in every place, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So let's stop here. Paul uses an illustration of a potter in clay. The potter can do what he wants with the clay. He's the creator, in other words. Paul is saying, God's the creator. We are the creation. We have to make sure we understand that. And at the same time, as Stott points out, who I quoted earlier, we aren't pots. It's an illustration. You can't press it too far. He's just trying to make the point of God is sovereign. Just as, a, as, a, as God is the creator over us, just as the potter is the creator of the pot. And he, he, but, but we're not pots. We're made in God's images, right? Made in God's image. We're image bearers of God. 
He makes us with a soul and with a will and all these things. And so the point is not that we are mindless pots. The point is God is the creator and he has power over the creation. Verse 22, he points out God is patient even with those who will never choose him. Right? We find that God's grace here in this picture, his mercy they look all the more glorious against the backdrop of his wrath. You see that? He's gonna, he, if he chooses to show mercy and to reveal his glory in this way. See, Paul seems to be saying in this little section, in the end, the fact that God both judges and justifies, shows mercy and pours out his wrath on those that deserve it. He, it will make his grace appear all the more glorious, the fact that he saves anyone. It'll make it all, and he's, he's like, I don't fully understand that. We don't have to understand that. And all Paul says is, notice how he presented this whole dialogue right here is, what if? Okay. What if? He's just basically saying, listen, Paul's, God's vast, God's big, and God can do what he wants, so there should be a check in our spirit when we start telling God what he can do. And we have to view God as big enough to allow for what we can't understand or figure out with our finite minds. We have to trust that God knows more, can do more than all we can do, instead of editing God down to a point that we can neatly package him the way we fully understand everything about him, and you can fully understand everything about him, and he operates just like this, all right? We can't do that. We can't. It's kind of, think about it like this. If you were to go sign up to take a college course, and you were to walk in the first day, and the professor says, here's the syllabus, and you look at the syllabus, and there's the professor's name, and there's the date, and contact information, and here's the dates of everything, all the books you're going to have to read, here's the test dates, the final exam, everything's laid out there. And a student walks up to the teacher and says, hey, teacher, 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 I've got a problem here. My birthday is this date, and I see you've got a big test plan for that date, and I always go to Disney World on my birthday. Been doing that since I was a kid, so can, can I take the test on a different day? And the teacher goes, no, 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 that's the day of the test. Wow, teacher, um, I got another problem here. I see you want us to read these five books. That's a lot of reading for me. Um, and honestly, I don't like this particular author. I read another book by them. So can I just read these four, maybe substitute? No, no, no. You're going to have to read some stuff you don't like. You're going to have to read that one too. I don't know if I can deal with this professor. So, well, how about this? I see you give us your office number, but what if I really need to reach you? Can I have your cell phone? No, you can have the office number and you can call me office hours. Unreasonable. Now, now who's unreasonable? The student. He doesn't seem to understand whose class it is. <laughs> the professor can lead the class as the professor so deems to lead the class. And someone said one time, this is God's world and we live by God's rules. And you might not like God's rules, but guess what? You're in God's world. And you're going to operate according to God's rules. We don't get to manifest ourselves a God of our mind that does as we please. You get the God that is. And he happens to be, we're going to see, he happens to be the God you need. He's the God who shows mercy. And that's a big deal because that means he's chosen not to give his people what they deserve. In fact, those people he says were not his people, quoting from the Old Testament, he says here in this section, he says he makes those people his people. That If you're a Gentile today, and probably everybody in the room is as far as I know, and you're a Christian, that's your verse, man. <laughs> the reason you get in the family is because God went to some people who were not his people, who were not. We sang about it this morning. Covenant promises did not fall to us. 
You're like, that's what that old hymn's about. Yeah, great is his faithfulness. He chose to save us. We didn't deserve it. We were outside the promises. That's about us. The family of God now comes from both Jewish background, Gentile background. We are now his people because he chose us to make us his people. Praise God. If it weren't for that, we're lost. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit. Verses 27 through 29, I'm not going to read it, but let me just explain here. He points out how Isaiah even pointed out only a remnant of Israel would ultimately be saved. In other words, it's always been, he's making the point again, that all those of Jewish descent would not ultimately be saved. God never promised every single individual who was biologically an Israelite would be saved. But ultimately, we see it only as those who trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the stone is a him, it's a person, it's the Messiah. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And he says, listen, here comes the Messiah and some people are going to stumble over him. They're going to gash their legs on him instead of falling on him in faith and saying, I need the Messiah to save me and rescue me. They're going to say, I don't like the way he looked. He doesn't fit my, my definition of what a Messiah should be. And they're going to throw that rock out or they're going to stumble over that block. And that's the one I'm building the whole thing on. And what Paul ends this chapter with, this incredible chapter on the sovereignty of God, he ends it with man's responsibility. You see it? The Israelites, he's saying, who are lost, it's because they didn't choose to trust Jesus. It's their fault, not God's. Anybody. It's, 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 that's for all of us. Why? why? So they, they rejected the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the stone, the one the church is built on, the one faith has to be built on. And they stumbled and tripped over him instead of trusting in him. And rather than trusting Jesus by faith, they pursued righteousness through their works. Hey, how many today in and around the church are missing a right standing with God because they're pursuing it by their good moral works instead of by faith in Christ? You can only be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You can't be baptized enough, join enough churches, do enough good things, pray enough prayers to save yourself. You need Jesus in your place on the cross, raised from the dead, which is what he did for you. And you need to rely on and trust in him to save you from your sin. Only Christ and his work can get you to heaven, not you and your works. So like the Israelites, you can either stumble over this truth or you can fall in faith before God and say, save me, Jesus. And if you do, Paul's saying, it's all of God. It's his miracle in your life. And if you don't, he's saying, it's on you. That's the tension, right? The tension is God is sovereign in all this. And he saves and he shows mercy on whom he will. And we are responsible in all this. You're like, how do you reconcile all this? And I saw a great illustration on this uh, this week. A guy uh, about how the tension in this is actually good. And some things work better with tension, right? This guy brought a huge um, slingshot up on stage and like, like drew out the tension. Slingshots only work with, right, with what? With tension. When I was a kid, my granddad used to make them. He'd carve them out of wood. He would whittle them, we call it in Alabama. He'd whittle them out of wood, we call it in Alabama. And he'd put a big, uh, 
He didn't call it a slingshot. He called it a flip. And, uh, and he made me one when I was a kid before he passed away. And I've still got that thing put away. And you pull that thing back and you could take a rock and you could shoot it, you know, whatever. And I remember when I was a kid, I went to Walmart one time and I saw what was called a super slingshot. And this thing would like make you look like Robocop or something, like over your arm. And it like shoots a rock 200 miles per hour. It's something no eight-year-old boy should have, but this eight-year-old boy did. But it only worked with the tension. Right? You needed the tension there, and, and the tension is not a bad thing. We don't need to resolve all the tension. Sometimes that's where you get in trouble, is trying to resolve. The tension, it's okay to live with the tension of God is sovereign. I'm responsible, and I don't have to know every little detail about how all that works out. I can just rest in the fact that God is sovereign. I'm responsible. So our God is a big God, and we can just trust him. So let me give you some very quick takeaways, and we're going to go through these very fast, just to help you wrestle with this tension. First takeaway is this, no one deserves salvation. No one deserves salvation. That helps us wrestle with this tension. Paul made that point clear. God owes us nothing. I deserve to be judged and condemned for my sin. Every day this side of hell is grace for me. I do not deserve to be forgiven. It's in God's grace and his mercy that I, that I said, listen, if salvation was, was left up to me, I would have never been saved. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have achieved it. I love what Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon, one of those great Baptist preachers from the 1800s, he said, if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And it's true. I don't deserve, I would, I'm, I'm a sinner. So what about my free will? Your free will is marred by sin. And as I heard somebody say this week, there's no such thing as ultimate free will. You say, what are you talking about? Can you fly? Can you run 200 miles per hour even if you really want to? No. <laughs> right? So there's limitations. And our will is marred by sin. Our will is such that we're so sinful that the Bible has already showed us in Romans. We choose sin every time. So we need God to move on our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or we'll never be saved. He has to draw us. We need to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel. We need the spirit of God to work on our heart. We need God to change our heart. All those things. We don't deserve to be saved. So if we can wrap our mind around that. Because many times our problem with trying to resolve this tension in some way. Is sometimes on one end it comes from not truly believing that no one deserves salvation. We somehow categorize it and say, yeah, we're lost. I'm lost. Or I was lost. But didn't deserve salvation? Yeah, he didn't deserve it. It's humbling. Everyone will not be saved. That is a sad truth. But if it were not for grace, no one would be. Number two, God is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over salvation. And that's a good thing. Listen, yes, God chooses. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, God chose you. That's how you need to understand that. We can't escape that. If we got saved, it's God's doing. If you're in Christ today, you're one of God's chosen people. That's all through the New Testament. Paul has shown this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We shouldn't freak out when we read Romans 9 and go, wait just a minute, because Paul shows us God has always been operating this way. We need a theology robust enough that we don't sit as judge and jury over God and get to define God. We have to allow the word of God to reveal him. And listen, here's the big point. You are not saved today because of your merit or upbringing or good works or your own will. You're saved today because God did that. And if God did it, you can't undo it. And that's good news. Because if I could undo it, I would have already undid it. That's what I know about myself. The story is told of the illustration of 
great preacher by the name of Donald Barnhouse. He used to use this illustration. He would say, imagine the, to help you understand God's sovereignty and election and how all this works together because people get off in ditches on this stuff. And, and he said, imagine this big doorway to heaven and it's shaped like a cross. And you look up and you see it and it says, whosoever will may come. And you walk through it and you get to the other side and you're in heaven. And you look back and you see chosen before the foundation of the world. And he used to use that illustration. He would just say, that's how we explain the, that's the tension. Whosoever will may come. But these truths and understanding this is best understood in hindsight. And is generally in the Bible best presented that way. And the third thing is that it helps us understand is this. We are responsible for our decisions. And we make real decisions. We're not robots. Any theology that makes us robots is bad theology. God's sovereignty and salvation does not nullify our responsibility for our decisions. Two things can be true. God chooses us and we choose God. You must decide what you will do with Jesus. So must your neighbor. So must your spouse. So must your, your, your child. We have to make a personal decision. What will I do with Jesus? That's a real thing. It, it really matters. And chapter 10 of Romans is all about how we must personally believe in the gospel and how we must share the gospel. And see, we need Romans 9 and Romans 10 theology, not Romans 9 theology or just Romans 10 theology. You got to have it all in context. God is sovereign. Believe the gospel. Share the gospel. That's how it works. We're responsible for the decisions we make. We preach the gospel. We urge people to believe. We pray to God, asking him to draw them to himself. Man, we, we give them faith. Help them believe. When we pray, on pray, pray, pray. And then we preach to people and we go, believe, 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 repent, repent, repent. And that's how it's supposed to work. We call people to make a decision. We pray to God to save them. We don't urge people to save themselves. We know God does the saving, but people must make a real choice. Am I going to follow Jesus or not? You say, I can't reconcile this in my mind. I think it was Spurgeon, that great preacher, who said, how do you reconcile friends? To God, these things are friends. To God, they don't need reconciling, but to us... We have trouble wrapping our finite minds around it. We need, though, to embrace a both theology. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Number four, election should bring us comfort and bring, it does bring God glory. Election, that word we saw here in Romans and you see throughout the New Testament, is meant to bring us comfort and it's, it brings God glory. Let me explain. Romans 9 is written so believers will understand God's going to keep his promise. It's written to show us that the Israelites that rejected Jesus, that, that didn't mean that God had failed to keep them. It's meant to comfort us that we can know God will keep his word to us. And if you believe the gospel, you'll be saved. In fact, all the great passages about election in Ephesians and places like that and predestination, that's what they're there for. They're there to comfort you. As a believer, they're there to comfort you and make you realize, wow, it's, it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God and his grace. They're there to remind us that we serve a God that is bigger than our mistakes and our sin and our failures. That's what it's there to do. They're not there to fight about and to cause conflict and to cause confusion. That's not the point. I heard a pastor say years ago, I was sitting in a service when I was in my early 20s. And he said, do, he was preaching through Romans, and he said, do not play mental gymnastics with the Bible. And I thought, what does that mean? Then he explained. He said, man, don't try to do things in your mind with the Bible. Don't go places the Bible don't go. Don't try to figure out all the stuff that God has not, doesn't want you to figure out. 
Or you're not meant to figure out. Or you can't figure out. Don't go where the Bible doesn't go. Don't try to piece together a puzzle God never intended for you to solve. See, election's also in the Bible to show us God's glory. Paul pointed that out in the passage. Salvation is ultimately about God's glory, not ours. We don't have time to unpack this, but the scriptures are littered with this truth. God saves people, first and foremost, for his own glory. And I heard this illustrated well uh, this, uh, in the last week or two here, uh, in this last week, um, by uh, Pastor J.D. Greer, who's the, the president of our church network. And he, he likened it, he said, so imagine this is the sun, Okay. And the earth, what, revolves around the sun and it's just the right distance and everything is, the, or, the universe and the solar system is organized in just the right way so that we can have life on earth. And the sun's in just the right place for that to happen. But if earth was in the middle and the sun revolved around it, it would mess everything up. And he made the point, he said, so personify the sun for a moment and you'll see the most loving thing the sun could do was to cause the earth to revolve around it. This would be the best thing for the earth. You can't have life without it. And not to revolve around the earth. And in the same way, you have to understand, if God is who God really is, the best thing God can do for you and for me is to pursue his own glory. Because it's for our good. It's for our good. It's for our benefit too. The fifth thing, the final thing is this. The gospel offers salvation to everybody, to everybody, to everyone, whosoever will may come. That's the invitation. Jesus died to save sinners, of which we are all sinners. Christ paid the sin debt, and anyone that will believe in him as Lord and Savior, that he died in their place and rose again, can be saved. If you want to be saved today, you can be. There's no one in the room today that can go, I really wish I could be saved, but I guess I'm not chosen. I really want, I really want to be forgiven, but I guess I'm, that person doesn't exist. There's not a person on the planet that sincerely wants Jesus to forgive their sin that cannot be forgiven. That is, the gospel offers salvation to everyone. If you're here today and you read Romans 9 and think, oh no, what if I'm not chosen? You're reading it wrong. Or I've done a bad job teaching it. That's not the point. You should read it and get to the end of it and go, what have I done with Jesus? Am I stumbling over him or falling before him in faith and following him? If you don't know Christ today, hear this. You can be saved today and need to be saved today through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus who died on your, in your place and rose from the dead. And as a believer, the big takeaway at the end of Romans is this. And we're going to get in Romans 9 and when we get into Romans 10 is this. We got to share the gospel. God does the saving, we do the sharing. The, the only hope anyone has is the gospel. No one gets saved without putting their faith in Jesus. No one doesn't get saved who does put their faith in Jesus. So like Paul, what we need is not to sit around and debate this in coffee shops for years, but to go tell somebody about Jesus and pray that God would save them and plead with them that they'd be saved. That's the big takeaway. Don't stumble over Jesus. Don't miss him trying to earn your way to heaven. Fall in faith before Jesus who died in your place and rose again. And let's be burdened to share that truth with our neighbors. Let's pray.